How's everybody feeling this morning? Did we appreciate that word from, from Lauren? Did we appreciate that word from Lauren? There it is. All right. All right. Just making sure we're alive. Uh, like he said, my name is Marcus DePeel, and I am uh, privileged to be with you guys this morning. Um, I, a little bit of my background, just super quick. I went to Indiana Western University up in Marion, Indiana. Okay, yep, a little love right there. I love it. Uh, not too far up the road, I got an undergrad and a master's in ministry and theology, so that's a little bit of my background. I was a local church pastor for about four years, um, and last year made the decision to step away just for a season of healing for some things that I went through, and I'm very excited for God to use me where I'm at right now in the marketplace, as we talked about last night, and in the future again in vocational ministry. Um, I have to be very transparent about a couple things. First thing is I haven't actually preached at all since I was here last year, so I'm going to be a little rusty, all right? So I already had the nerves going for that, and then I woke up this morning feeling like I got hit by a bus, and I feel like garbage right now. So just transparently, um, if God does not show up, we're about to waste 30 minutes of our time. So if you would, throughout this sermon, just pray with me that God would use me and heal my body and just make sure that his word gets delivered despite how I feel and the human element of this. I would greatly appreciate that. Um, I had, real quick, before I jump into the sermon, I just had something on my heart uh, that I wanted to share very, very briefly. Uh, I met a guy at a church camp one time uh, that I was speaking at, and he gave me this concept I'd never heard before, a concept of what he called fresh bread in the Christian life. And he said, I think it's very important as Christians that when we step into community, we always have some kind of fresh bread to offer each other. And I was like, you bring some sourdough? Like, what, what are we talking about, man? <laughs> you know, and he was like, no, I think it's important that, you know, from our devotional time and from our season of life that we're walking through with the Lord, it's important that we always have some kind of message for one another. And so I just want to share really briefly, I felt this on my heart actually last night. I had no plans to share it. It wasn't in my notes until last night. Um, but the last couple years of my life, just I won't go into the, the complete details, been very, very difficult in some ways. Um, all the ins and outs aren't all that important. But I've been, uh, for the last maybe six months, very drawn to a specific passage of Scripture in the book of Joel. I don't know how many of you guys, if you're being honest, have even read the book of Joel. It's way back in the Old Testament. It's one of those, you're like, ah, just go ahead, like Matthew, Mark, Luke's, and Acts, right? I'll just skip over that. But in the book of Joel, uh, the Lord actually is punishing the nation of Israel for their sin, uh, for ways that they have gone against him. And there's this really just, it's, it's very surprising, it's very cool, and to me it's become very beautiful uh, words from the Lord through the prophet Joel that he speaks. And I'm going to read it for us and then just give a very brief explanation, then I'll dive into the sermon. But after this punishment has come on them, the Lord says through Joel, he says, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locust and the young locust, the other locust and the locust swarm. Bunch of bugs, FYI, that ate all the grain. My great army that I sent among you, you will have plenty to eat until you are full and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. There's something about these few verses, and as you study it and you look through the commentaries, that just, it absolutely blows my mind. Like I said, the last few years of my life have been unfortunately difficult for a few different reasons, and in many ways, I have felt at times, even in prayer, like, God, I feel like the last few years of my life are just lost. Like, why did I live? You know what I mean? I feel like I just, like, I might as well have just 
not lived those and just like woke up three years later. Like it did, I just wish that like 24 to 27 for me, just lost years. And that's been like a weird prayer of mine. Like, God, what are you going to do about that? Like, are you going to restore that? Or are you going to and just come into Joel and he says, I'm going to actually restore the things that were lost in your life. And what I love is he says, I'm going to bring a degree of abundance that replenishes those lost years. So it's not just like the famine's going to end. It's like the last few years, Israel, that you have not eaten, next year you're going to get the food for the last three years as well. And I don't know why, but I just felt the need to share that with somebody. I don't know if anybody in the room you know, here today feels like you're in a season where some years of your life have been lost or this last season has been lost, but I just want to prophetically even declare that God sees those years and he is going to bring an abundance, an abundance to your life that replaces those lost years in your heart and soul. I don't know if that sits well with anybody. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands or anything, but I just want to say that before we dive in. Uh, real quick, I'm going to pray over this message, and we're going to get after it. Sound good? All right. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity. Um, I thank you for the ability to be here, despite even how I feel, God. I thank you that uh, you forced me by your spirit to get up out of bed and to open your word and to stand before your people and declare not what I have to say, Lord, but what you do. And I ask this morning, God, that you would convict us, you would challenge us, but more than anything, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would encourage us. Because we know that any conviction comes with encouragement and it comes with joy and it comes with hope and it comes with a purpose. God, you are not one to discourage us, but it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. And as we walk the road of repentance, we know that it leads us to life and life to the full. So Jesus, would you be here? Would you speak to us? We honor you this morning. It's in your name. Amen. Amen. So as you know by now, this entire conference has been centered on the concept and the theme of being on mission. Not merely claiming to be Christians just for the sake of a title. I mean, there's not much importance in that, but living the life of a practicing Christian, one with a clear aim and a clear purpose. And I don't think Lauren could have captured that much better than she did a few minutes ago. So with that said, with that concept of being on mission, I want to focus the time that we have together this morning around a single question that you're going to hear multiple times throughout this sermon. And the question is this, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? Again, where is your allegiance? Now, our text for this morning, uh, we actually already heard it from Lauren. It's, you know, crazy how the Lord does these things. I love it. Uh, but it's Matthew 28, 16 to 20. It is the great commission. Again, not the great suggestion. I love how she said that, but the great commission. And this is the obvious scripture choice when it comes to being on mission in many ways. I had a feeling that somebody else that spoke uh, this weekend would probably use it as well. But today I want you to hear these verses and be paying careful attention to verse 19 as we read. So if you open your Bible or have it on your phone, pay close attention to verse 19 as we read in a few specific words. Matthew 28, 16 to 20 says this, then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Verse 19, check it. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Three words, key words right here. In the name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
I want you to remember those three words, in the name. Those are going to come back, come back, and come back. Uh, but real quick question for you guys. Has anyone in the room, this is an actual question, show of hands is fine. Anybody in the room ever gotten lost in nature? Anybody? Show of hands. Just real quick, somebody that's willing to share, like just shout it out. Like where'd you get lost at? Anybody? White River Park? Okay. How long did it take you to get out? That's kind of long. Not going to lie. That's kind of long. Anybody else real quick? Where'd you get lost? Yeah. Richie Woods, how long did it take you to get out? 30 minutes, okay, so thankfully not like four hours overnight or anything crazy, but okay, getting lost in the woods and nature or something like that doesn't really happen all that much anymore, right? I mean, smartphones and, and the maps programs that we have access to on them now pretty much have eliminated uh, our need for these things, but when people used to get lost in the woods or lost in nature, they had these little devices, I don't know if you ever heard of it, it's called a compass. Anybody ever heard of that before? Anybody ever used a compass before in their life? Like three of us, right? Funny enough, uh, we actually all have compasses like on our cell phones, which I'm like, I don't know why they would put that on there. It's like I got, like I have Google Maps, dude. I can see the world on my phone and you put a compass on there like I need it, but whatever. It's fine. But anyway, uh, if you don't know, little quick like third grade science lesson, right? Compasses have like some kind of uh, magnetic needle in them that responds to the magnetic pull of the, or the Earth's natural magnetic north pole. These compasses were created, again, to always point in the same direction so that you can objectively know where you're headed at all times, again, to not get lost, to know the direction to walk, to know what you're following. And just this week, actually, I was uh, re-watching the Pirates of the Caribbean series. Any big Pirates fans in the room? I'm not about to go into the whole Johnny Depp stuff, you know, I'm not doing that, right? But Pirates of the Caribbean, man, I, I just, I forget how much I love the series every time until I watch it, dude. It's very underrated. Love the series. But not sure how many of you remember, but the main character, uh, Jack Sparrow, or forgive me, that would be Captain Jack Sparrow, right? Captain Jack Sparrow, he has a compass of his own. And this compass is not your average compass. Uh, everybody actually thinks that this compass is broken. It just kind of like keeps spinning around and pointing in random directions. But as you watch the movies, you find out that this compass is actually kind of magical to some degree. Instead of responding to the Earth's natural magnetic north pole, this compass always points in the direction of the thing that you want most in the world. Always points to the thing that you want most in the world. Essentially, this compass has the ability to know the deepest desire of your heart and to point you in the right direction. And pretty much all these movies revolve around Captain Jack Sparrow, right, using this compass for himself and even giving it to other people to help them find certain treasure or ultimately to find the, the beating heart of Davy Jones in the chest. You know, pretty weird stuff, but whatever. It's all good. Great movies. If you haven't seen them recently, just go rewatch them. They're fantastic. But anyway, you're probably wondering, all right, Marcus, what is having lost in nature and compasses and especially like Pirates of the Caribbean? What does that have to do with mission and allegiance. I say all this to, to get to my first point today, which is this, that we are all following something. And you're probably like, wow, that's so profound, Marcus. Thank you for that. Now listen, we are all following something. The culture that we live in today, it loves and promotes the idea that we shouldn't be followers. And we shouldn't just blend in but we should stand out, we should lead ourselves, we should be our own boss, be completely autonomous, and the list goes on and on and on. This is what we're fed all the time. And the hard truth is that nobody's actually following nothing and nobody's actually leading themselves. As much as we wanna master ourselves, 
and come out from under any oppressive authority that holds us back. We are all truly following something or someone. I'd say it this way, no matter who you are, you have chosen, whether knowingly or not, to orient your life around following something. It could be a person or a people group or a friend group kind of set trajectory for your life. It could be an idea that you've chosen to commit to, or it could even be your own desires. Whatever feels good in the moment is just what you do. But the reality is we are all following something. And we could even be following a combination of all these different things at once. And it could depend on the day. Like, I don't know, when I wake up, maybe today I do what feels good. And maybe tomorrow I don't want to make decisions, so I'm going to let my friends make all my decisions. Any way you slice it, we're all following something. We're not our own master. And if you've oriented your life around following your own desires and whatever feels good, listen, you're actually, I mean, that's, that's the lie of today's culture. Just orient your life around what feels good in the moment. That doesn't make you your own master. That actually makes you a slave in many ways. You're a slave to your stomach. You're a slave to your greed. You're a slave to your sexual appetite, or you're a slave to your desire for security and comfort. How you're feeling and what you're craving is actually determining what you do, and the only way to lead your desires is actually to follow something else that changes what you love. We'll talk about that more later on. But again, I want to restate it. We are all following something, and I'd add this. We all have a compass, and we've all placed our allegiance somewhere intentionally or not. And at this point, I want to go back to the Great Commission, Matthew 28, and go back to those three important words in verse 19. Jesus said, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, again, what are those three words? In the name. Baptizing them, three words, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And this little phrase, in the name, carries far more significance back then in these biblical times than it probably does for us today. It would have meant something much deeper and much more. For someone to be baptized in the name would mean they were literally, this, this is going to, I mean, it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but they were literally baptized into the name of a specific person as if they were putting on some kind of clothing or some kind of garment. It was like a, a, ch a changing of a wardrobe. I'm baptized into their name. In other words, it was a stake in the ground moment. It was a changing of a compass, it was a complete change in allegiance. I'm baptized in the name. Listen to the way this Bible scholar named Albert Barnes says it. He says, in the name does not mean here by the authority of the Father, Son, and Spirit, although that much is true, it's not the point. To be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit is the same as to be baptized unto the Father, as to believe on the name of Christ is the same as to believe on Christ. To be baptized unto anyone is publicly to receive and adopt him as a religious teacher or lawgiver. Catch this, this is so important. To receive his system of religion. To put on a garment, again. Thus the Jews were baptized unto Moses in the Old Testament. That is, they received the system that he taught. They acknowledged him as their lawgiver and their teacher. Listen, to be baptized, I mean, it's come up now, as Lauren said, it was three out of three. Well, you're welcome. It is four out of four now, right? Baptism, baptism, baptism. To be baptized into the name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, is to receive his system and receive his compass while giving him our undivided allegiance. 
This idea would have made a lot of sense as well culturally to the disciples and the rest of the Jewish people at this time in history because their understanding of this word. Hopefully this word can pop up on the screen. It is the word rabbi. I don't know if it's on the screen up there, but the word rabbi. I'm going to say it, and I'll have you repeat it after me. It is rabbi. 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 Anybody know what this word means? Teacher. Okay, that's good. It's just not, it's not holistic, I would say, and that's not a wrong answer. I'm not blasting anybody, okay? But teacher is kind of the best word that we have in our English language to understand what a rabbi meant. And many of us know, yeah, rabbi, teacher, same type of thing, right? That's what Jesus was. Yes and no all at once. The word rabbi and the word teacher actually have some drastically different, not just meaning, but implications, especially for the Jews in the first century. Now, to give you some context of what a rabbi meant to the Jewish people, it's very important to understand their culture at this time. It's going to be a nerdy little stretch for about three minutes, but I have to have you hang with me for this to make sense at the end. It was very common for young Jewish boys at the age of five, about kindergarten age. Anybody know a kindergartner in your life? I don't know if you have, like, cousins, siblings, you know, people in your neighborhood, kindergartners, okay? I want you to think of a kindergartner right now and then listen to what I'm about to say. It was very common for young Jewish boys at the age of five, kindergarten age, to begin going to a local synagogue to learn the Hebrew language and to learn to memorize the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. Does the kindergartner you know seem like he could just sit down and memorize the Torah? Do you seem like you could sit down and memorize the Torah? I don't. So, I mean, that's, that's the culture that these people are living in. They would study for around eight years, and by the time they were 13 years old, which for the last year I've been volunteering at a local church serving as a small group leader for seventh grade boys, which would mean that my small group of seventh grade boys, by the time they reached that age, this is what they would do. They would have memorized the Torah entirely, and also the Nevi'im, which is a, a book that is the prophets, and then the Ketuvin, a book that is known as the writings. In other words, by the age of about 13, these young boys would have memorized about half of the Old Testament. I want you to just wrap your brain around that. Any, any teacher in the room, by chance? Any teacher? Maybe not. But can you imagine a 13-year-old? You're like, hey, uh, what does, like, Judges 4, 7 say? And they're like, boom, too easy. It's like, I don't, how many times have any of us read that? You know what I mean? That, that's their culture at this time. And these young boys that excelled at this would then go on to another phase of learning that would last until they were around 16 to 18, at which point they got divided out again. The ones who passed the second phase with flying colors and excelled were then encouraged to follow a rabbi in a yeshiva or a rabbinic community. So they would follow a teacher in some kind of smaller community in which they would begin to learn. But which rabbi you ended up following was very important. And this is where the distinction of teacher and rabbi really, really, really comes into play. Listen, the way your rabbi interpreted and taught God's word was binding to whoever became their disciple. To put it simply, you did not disagree with your rabbi. Like, I went to college, and at the end of each semester, they had us do, like, surveys and evaluations of how our professors did. I don't know if anybody had to do that, but it was like, did they teach effectively, and did they do this, that, and the other thing? It's like, no, in a, in a yeshiva, in a rabbinic community back in this time, you didn't question the authority, and anything that they said went. 
There was no survey. There was no evaluation. If you chose to be, participate in one of these communities, your allegiance was full, unquestioned, and guaranteed. Once you chose a rabbi, you were required then to not just follow them in that manner, but to replicate their teachings, to teach exactly as they taught, to become a mini-me. Did you know that the word Christian really means little Christ? It means that we're all in a yeshiva, a rabbinic community, following our rabbi, teaching what he taught, and not taking anything away. On the rabbi's end, they would be looking for someone, again, to, who would be and teach exactly like them. They were looking for the disciples that would emulate their life in teaching the most. To follow a rabbi was to literally become like that person. If a rabbi thought you had the potential to become like them and emulate their teachings, they would, after a very long, interview-like process, say the famous words, come and follow me. Does sound familiar to anybody? Sound like some words of Jesus, potentially? Listen to the way this scholar, Doug Greenwald, says it, and then we're about to get very serious in a second. He says this, Throughout the Gospels, the phrase, follow me, is a Jewish idiom used by the rabbis to mean, come and be with me as my disciple and submit to my authoritative teaching. Hearing this meant that you had made the last cut. You're now on the varsity, a good feeling. You are good enough to be my disciple, but we in the West tend to focus mostly on the appealing come and be with me front end part of the invitation. But contextually, you cannot have one without the other. Absolute submission to a rabbi, and in our case, to Jesus' authoritative teaching is a Siamese twin, it's a pretty drastic metaphor, with the come and be with me part of that invitation. To, to put that in very simple terms, the whole just come and sit before the feet of Jesus and come and abide and all these great sermons that we hear a lot of times and the beautiful worship songs that we sing, which by the way, nothing wrong with that. That is complete half of the life that we are called to live. That is something that cannot be divorced from. Submit fully to this. No questions. You're allowed to question what it means. You're allowed to, to ask, what does that look like? But come and be with me. Taste and see that I am good. The other half of that equation is submit to my teaching. Put your allegiance here. It's pretty intense stuff, isn't it? And it was something that these people at this time, when Jesus says to baptize them in the name, they understand. And I explain all of this to make one very simple and politically incorrect statement, which is this right here. That today, in our world, where we live, there are only two rabbis. There are only two rabbis. There are only two, I would say, yeshivas, rabbinic communities, cultures. There are only two. There are only two rabbis. And let's take a moment and remember the words Jesus spoke earlier on in the book of Matthew, long before he uttered the Great Commission near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Now we need to unpack this, okay? Uh, what Jesus is doing here, for those listening near the end of this Sermon on the Mount, is he's making something very clear. In life, for all humans, for all eternity, there are only two roads to walk. And each of these roads, those two roads, 
lead somewhere. We said earlier that we all follow something, and Jesus' point here is that as we follow whatever it may be, it is leading us down a road that does have some kind of end and does have some kind of gate and result to it. One road, the narrow road, leads to life, and the other road, the broad road, leads to destruction. And here is why everything I said about young Jewish boys going and studying and understanding what a rabbi means, this is why it's so important. Because each road that Jesus is talking about represents a rabbi. Each one of these roads represents a rabbi. Each road represents a way of life, the following of a compass, the placing of your allegiance. Jesus' point, again, is that the enemy is the rabbi of the broad road and that he, Jesus, is the rabbi of the narrow road. I want to spend a little time on each road, and then we're going to bring this to a head at the end. Starting with the wide gate and the broad road. When Jesus says that this is wide and this is broad, he's not just saying it like just because, but he means that there is actually a ton of variety on this road. A ton of variety. You can follow a ton of different things. You can follow different people, different religions, different political ideals and agendas, or you can be led around by your own desires and whatever feels good in the moment. And catch this, it all ends up, if that is the primary road that you choose to walk, if that is your primary compass, and if this is your primary rabbi, all of this different variety has the same destination to it. And that's the wide gate that leads to destruction. But we've been so convinced in our culture, have we not, that we have a plethora of options when it comes to what compass that we follow in this life. You can do anything you want to do. You can be anything that you want to be. I mean, some of us have chosen to make our primary compass, and yes, I'm about to step on some toes this morning. Some of us have chosen to make our primary compass in this life a political one. We really have. That if I just believe and if I just vote and if I just convince people that Republican ideals are the way to go in this life, we're going to end up in utopia. That's where we want to be. And there are people that think the same thing about the other end of the spectrum, aren't there? That if we would just follow all these democratic policies and if we would just follow all this and think about all the other ideals, communism, socialism, you get on the list, there are people that that is their primary compass where they put their faith and their hope. That is the road that they are on and understand something. Both sides, all sides, if that is the primary compass and allegiance that you have in this life, leads to the same place with the same outcome. Others of us think we ought to orient our lives simply around doing what we please. I've heard this time and time again. I'm just going to mind my own business and let other people do the same. What they do doesn't hurt me, doesn't bother me, no big deal. Let's all just do what we like. Guess what? Doing what you like, do you know where it leads? The wide gate. Destruction. Even others believe there's no harm in believing any kind of religion you please. All of us end up going to the same place just as long as you're a good person. Guess where that leads? The wide gate. Destruction. Others of us, we follow, probably unintentionally, but we follow the ideals of famous celebrities and pop culture making the aim of our lives to get as much as we can while we can. I mean, I don't, you guys are probably younger than me, but YOLO was a big deal when I was in, in high school, right? You only live once. Live it up. Do everything you can. Do you know where that leads? The wide gate. Destruction. 
And the craziest part about this road is there are so many different ways you can walk it. Like I said, there is variety on this road. You'll probably hate other people on the same road going to the same place that leads to the same result. That's how broad it is. But it all leads, if it's your primary allegiance and your primary compass, it all leads to the same place. I say it this way, all of these things are the same road leading to the same place, just disguised as different compasses with different outcomes. The enemy is unbelievably creative with how he leads people into destruction. The rabbi of the broad road is Satan himself, and get this, he loves when you don't know that he's the one you're following. He thrives in it. I mean, in America, we always think like, oh my gosh, spiritual warfare, like all, all over, everywhere else, it's just absolutely crazy. It's like the dude is winning in America in a way that is shocking. Because most of us in America, if we are on the broad road, we have no idea. Overseas, they're confronted with it, man. There's exorcisms, there's demons, there's crazy stuff. If you've ever been on a missions trip and seen some stuff, I mean, it, it gets a little weird sometimes. In America, we're like, why don't we see that? Is God not as active here or whatever? It's like everything's operating in the clouds, you guys. It's a culture war. It's a rabbinic community war. It's a yeshiva war. It's, it's really, when it comes down to it, it's which rabbi are you following and do you have any idea? That's why we're asking the question this morning. Where is your allegiance? Do you even know what your primary compass is this morning? Jesus names the other road, the narrow road. We said the broad road had a lot of variety. This road, not so much. Jesus means it's a very specific road with a very specific compass. The only way you find this road is by putting a stake in the ground as you change your allegiance or your compass. As Lauren said, as you enter into the waters of baptism and you you say, I am dead to myself and I am alive in Christ. And when I come out of that water, my allegiance is different. Did you know that's what baptism literally is all throughout the history of the church? It is a stake in the ground moment saying, guys, publicly before anyone and everyone that is interested in me at all, I am changing my allegiance and my compass to follow Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what baptism is. And I want to reiterate, if you have not experienced that and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I highly encourage you to publicly declare I'm changing my allegiance and my compass. But listen, you don't just say yes to following Jesus and then evaluate the pieces that you like and you don't like. That's not how this thing works. You're welcome to ask questions. You're welcome to pursue understanding, but you don't get to evaluate it and pick and choose and cherry pick certain scriptures. And I don't like the Old Testament, but I like the New Testament. I don't like this book, but I like that book. Guess what? Not quite how it works. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me and my word. And did you know Jesus Christ is the word of God that became flesh, and this is the word of God, which means this is the person of Jesus, which means this is the authority that we submit our lives to, and there are no debates with that. And I think we're losing that in our culture, and I think we're losing that in our generation. So I ask, again, for the eighth time, where is your allegiance? What is your comfort? What are you following, and do you even know? The rabbi of the narrow road is Jesus. I think Jesus himself said it best when he said, very simply, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, 
and take up their cross daily and follow me. In other words, whoever is to follow Christ must continually pledge their allegiance to him and to walk the narrow road that leads to eternal life. I'm going to invite the the band up uh, real quick. I'm going to be done very shortly. Famous last words for any preacher, right? I'm going to be done very shortly. I just want to sidebar real quick because I know that um, you're like, man, I know you're not feeling well, but you didn't have to come in this hot this morning. You didn't have to be this serious, you know. And and I want to step away from maybe how, how intense this has sounded up until this point. Because I think that for a lot of us, and, and I would include myself in this, when, when it really boils down to it, we are so unbelievably spoiled in America as Christians. We are so comfortable to a degree that I don't even, I don't even think we can wrap our minds around how comfortable we really are. Like even to say, gosh, I'm just so comfortable. It's like I don't think that we get it. I really don't. I mean, I've, I've talked with, you know, pastors over in Africa, and I've listened to their stories, and I've listened to what's going on in their villages, and I'm like, I, I can't, I don't even know how to relate to you. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, how serious the gospel is to you, I wish it was half that serious for me sometimes. And I think we are so comfortable, we are so in love, I would say it this way, with the compasses that we have in America as Christians. Be very transparent with you. I mean, one of the things that's just the hardest for me is, is I, I, I love money. And you're like, oh, can a pastor say that? Is that all right? I thought the love of the money is the root of all evil. It is. Uh, yes. This is, this is my compass. And I'm messed up. I love money. And did you know Jesus has a lot to say about what we do with our money in his scripture and in his teachings? Dude, it is really hard for me sometimes when I look at my bank account and I'm like, and I still got to give all this money to Jesus. Oh, like it makes me sick to my stomach sometimes. It's, it's a struggle for me. Maybe that's too transparent. Maybe that's too real. But it's like I'm, I'm being dead serious, man. I have a hard time with it. There are times, for sure, where it's like, gosh, man, like I know that God's word says this about how I'm supposed to treat this person. But, dude, they, they're the worst. They're the hardest person to love, and they're not helping themselves at all. And I would love to just absolutely bite their head off right now. And you're telling me that this... I mean, this is saying, turn the other cheek? Like, what do you mean? What do you mean, love the person that just absolutely ticks me off every single day that I walk into work? How? how, Why? Get a little bit more serious, man. Like, things like sexual appetite. Things like sexual identity. I know a lot of us, we're like, man, I, I mean, I know that God's word says this, but is there any way that maybe I could, like, not participate in that part fully? We're so comfortable. We have so many options. We have so much sin at our fingertips. I mean, if you have a smartphone, you have more sin at your fingertips than anybody throughout the entire history of the world has ever had access to. That's unbelievably dangerous. I think many of us, our our cell phones have our allegiance. Our cell phones are our primary compass. And the reason I bring all that up is I think a lot of us, when we hear this, like, oh, I need to give my allegiance to Jesus. I think a lot of us in the room, if you, do, if you would declare that you are a follower of Christ, you know that's the right answer. I know that's the right answer. And yet we are weirdly miserable 
about trading in our other compasses at times. And so you know what happens? We end up becoming not billboards for joy in this world on mission, but we end up becoming like billboards for misery and despair. It's like, yeah, I follow Jesus, man, but I had to give all this money away, and I follow Jesus, but I haven't had sex before marriage, and I follow Jesus, but I have to do this, and I can't, I can't really tell that person what I think, and I follow Jesus, but I can't really do the things that I want to do. I'm trying to submit my compass to, to Christ, but we end up just doing it like we're miserable, like we're not actually enjoying it. And i, I got to be completely honest, I think that's an issue for us in America, isn't it? We are so comfortable, even if we know the right answer, we have the hardest time trading in the things that we actually love. But I'm here to say this right now. If, he's, if even if, as I've been preaching, you know that in some area of your life, your allegiance is off. In some area of your life, you're following the wrong compass. Can I just encourage you that if you actually, not begrudgingly, not sort of, kind of, maybe I'll try it out, but if you actually submit a certain compass in your life to the feet of Jesus, and you say, man, I'm done with this broad road, because guess what? The Word of God tells me where it leads. It leads to destruction. You might love your compass right now, but I'm going to tell you, it's going to lead you to a place that you're, you're going to be miserable. Maybe temporarily, maybe eternally. That's how much is on the line. That's why Jesus says these words. But if you would trade in your compass, if you would come and follow me, and yes, also submit to my teachings, you're going to walk a very narrow road, it is going to be very specific. But do you remember where he says that it leads? To life. And I just have a very honest question for all of us. Do you believe that the creator of heaven and earth, and more intimately, the creator of your soul, do you believe that he knows you well enough to instruct you in a way that would make you more joyful than you ever thought you could be? Do you believe that? In fairness, it's okay if your answer is no. Because there's a man in Scripture, if you remember the story, he's like, dude, I am struggling to believe. But Jesus, would you help me overcome my unbelief? I think some of us today, it's, it's a very simple response. It's, Lord, I don't believe that this narrow road is any fun. America offers way too much way too much security, way too much comfort, way too much fun, way too many options, and I don't believe giving this up would satisfy me. I don't. I'm struggling with that. But God, by your grace, would you help me to overcome my unbelief and to surrender my primary compasses to you and to give my allegiance to you again? Would you trust? Would you? Are you bold enough and courageous enough to pray that prayer? Are you bold enough and courageous enough to say, I don't want to be a Christian that's miserable that I'm a Christian, but a Christian that is beyond joyful that I am one because I actually submitted my compasses and my allegiance to Christ. I found life. And what does Jesus say? It's not just life, but it is life to the what? Full. It is humanity as it was intended in the Garden of Eden. And guess what? We have access to that. But are we courageous enough and will we surrender enough to experience it? That's what the question is. So where is your allegiance? 
And I just want to get very specific. Again, I prayed at the beginning, no condemnation, no judgment. There is no shame. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. But where is your allegiance? In your finances and in mine, where is it? Is the kingdom of God our primary compass? Does our money, does our bank account, if we look at our transactions, is it like, yeah, clearly your primary compass is the kingdom of God? Or is it not? And if it's not, what is it? Be honest with yourself. With your sexuality, I mean, where is your allegiance? Who is your primary compass? What do you submit to? Yourself, your cravings, the word of God, what the world tells you. What is your compass? Where is your allegiance? With your stances on very hot topics, and I'm sorry if I'm stepping on toes this morning, but with your stances on things like gender identity and sexuality, what is your compass? What is it? It's on things like abortion, caring for, yes, the unborn child, but also the mother that's faced with impossible choices. I mean, these are very difficult things. And, and what is your compass? A podcast you listen to? A reel you saw on Instagram or a TikTok you saw? Is that your compass? Because that doesn't lead to life. That's not a good answer. The Word of God has things to say about these things. What's your, where's your allegiance? Where's your compass, guys? What kind of Christians are we? What kind of people are we? And as we talk about being on mission, this is where we're going to end. And I just have this question for us, and it, it, I, hope, I, I just hope this hits home after everything that we've said so far. My question to us is this. How can we teach people to walk a road we aren't already on? If we are to be on mission, if we are to do everything that Ross and that Josh and that Lauren have instructed us to do, if we're to come to revision and be like, man, God set me on fire to go and reach people, that's awesome. How can we, how can we help people walk a road that we're not willing to walk? How can we help people follow a compass that we are not following ourselves? And listen to me very clearly. The narrow road does not require perfection. That is the beauty of the gospel, and that is the grace of our God. The narrow road is a road of repentance. And I want to say it again. It is the kindness of our God that leads us to repentance. So here's, here's where we're going to end. I just ask that you would bow your heads and close your eyes right now. And I, I think when the gospel is truly preached and the word of God is, is preached fairly, I think there's a very weird mix of emotions. I think that it, at times it feels harsh. It says the word of God is like a, a two-edged, double-edged sword. Pierces joint and marrow. I think it hurts to hear the truth. And I think it should. But I think if, if there's a, a paradoxical way that that two-edged sword can be wrapped in such love and kindness and grace, it, it is. And today it is. And so, Lord, I ask right now that even for all of us in this room, myself included, that, God, you, your word would pierce our soul and it would hurt us in a, in a convicting way. But, God, that the wound that is created from conviction would just be filled up by your love and your grace and your encouragement, but that we would realize perfection is not demanded of us, but a, a right response is, a right heart posture is, a humility that says, God, I am so flawed. I, I fall on your grace again. And those that confess their sins and those that, that confess where they are off, you are faithful and you are just to forgive. God, you are so kind. You are so patient to us. 
And so, Lord, as we inspect our hearts and call on the Holy Spirit to inspect us as well, and you reveal to us the areas of our life where our allegiance and our compass is off, would your love and your grace and your mercy and your kindness and your encouragement fill us to say, my child, it is okay. I love you dearly. Get back on the narrow road. Get back on the road that leads to life. Because I have come to bring life for you and life to the full for each of us in this room. That is the truth of the gospel. So Lord, as we're about to respond, may your spirit fall. Convict, redeem, and love on Here's what I ask each of you. I just ask you to be honest with yourself, with every head bowed and eyes closed. If there's an area of your life where you just say, man, my, my allegiance has been misplaced. And if I'm to truly be on mission as I leave this conference, I need, I need to replace my allegiance in this area of my life. I need a new compass. I need the word of God to be my compass in this area. I need to seek out what he says. Submit to it unequivocally. Trusting that this leads to life. If there's an area of your life where you're like, I know my allegiance is off. Would you just lift a hand right now with every head bowed, eye closed. I want you to know my hand's in the air as well. We are all sinners before our God. We all need him desperately. So Lord, I ask for every hand that is in the air right now and every hand that's even lifted in somebody's heart if they're too, too nervous or too scared. Holy Spirit, that you would see our repentance before you and that your mercy would follow. That your Holy Spirit would sanctify our hearts. We cannot live a holy life without you. We cannot walk the narrow road without you. This is something that is way too hard. In our culture today, God, we have to go against the grain so much that we cannot do it without dependence fully on your Holy Spirit. So would you fall would you help us? Would you encourage us right now, Jesus, to seek somebody out after this moment to say, I have to confess where my allegiance has been on, and I need accountability to keep me on this narrow road. Would this be a moment for us, Lord, that spurs us on to the wide, to the narrow, to the narrow road, to the narrow gate that leads to life? Would you take us there? Would your spirit lead us like a north star, like a compass that never fails? Lead us to life and to life 